Hi, this is Alan Ruff, the Thursday host of A Public Affair. If you have a moment and uh, the resources, remember to support the station. And if you will, head over to wrtfm.org to donate and to see what else is going on at the station. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take it to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from And good afternoon. Welcome to this, the Thursday edition of a public affair. I'm your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff. Henry Kissinger died on November twenty eighth at the age of one hundred. Advisor to a succession of presidents, to some the greatest statesman of the American century and to others a mass murderer and mad bomber. Kissinger's importance and legacy will long be debated. He certainly left his mark, some would say an indelible stain, on our contemporary world. His diplomatic achievements aside, Kissinger played a role in prolonging the Vietnam War and expanding that conflict into neutral Cambodia. He facilitated genocides in that country, as well as in East Timor and Bangladesh. He helped accelerate civil wars in Southern Africa and supported coups and death squads throughout Latin America. He had the blood of at least three million people on his hands, according to our guest today, Greg Grandin. Greg Grandin is a U.S. historian and professor of history at Yale. He's the author of a number of acclaimed titles, among them Fordlandia, The Rise and Fall of Henry Ford's Forgotten Jungle City, and the Empire of Necessity, Slavery, Freedom, and Deception in the New World, which received the prestigious Bancroft and Beveridge Prizes in American history. His articles on current concerns have appeared in the New York Times, Harper's, the London Review of Books, The Nation, the Boston Review, the LA Times, and elsewhere. He also authored Kissinger's Shadow, the long reach of America's most controversial statesman, His writing on the man has appeared in a number of places over the last week. Greg Grandin, it's been quite some time, but I want to welcome you back to WORT. Thanks, Alan. It's been too long. I think so, too. Greg Grandin, in your 2015 book, Kissinger's Shadow, you posited that to understand the crises of a contemporary America, its never-ending wars abroad and political polarization at home, we have to understand Henry Kissinger. So where do we begin? How do we, we start to critically uh, evaluate his impacting legacy? I figured that perhaps the best place to begin might be to, with a brief biographical sketch. Who was Henry Kissinger? Well, Henry Kissinger was the, um, the, the national security advisor to Richard Nixon and Gerald Ford. And he was also served at the same time for an overlap of that period as Secretary of State. Eventually, he he uh, gave up the sec- uh, National Security Advisor under Ford. It was a total of eight years in total. So, 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 it was it was a it was a remarkably packed and and full eight years. And we'll get to some of the specifics and consequential eight years. Um, he was a German emigrant. Uh, he he was born in Firth, Germany, in in, uh, in 1923. He died in uh, 2023 at, at 100, um, and uh, he died in Vi- he was born in Weimar, Germany. But but he, his family fled when, when with the rise of the Nazis, and he lost 13. The, the number that's given out is 13 family members, relatively close family members, to the to the death camps and to the Nazis, and um, and he wound up in the Bronx, and uh, and and uh, and he he um, made his way through. He served in World War Two, and and and. He was in uh, army intelligence, and that's where he began to make some contacts. You know, he, you know, he had a fairly consequential um, and in, uh, uh, um, position in, in army intelligence. He basically administered a, a good chunk of, uh, I think, uh, you know, Western Germany, uh, Western Germany, um, and he, 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 you know, he. Um, 
he 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 used that as a lot of people did. I mean, this wasn't him to him particular, but certainly this was a moment after World War Two when the meritocracy in the United States was opening up to Jews, and he uh, he he wound up in Harvard, um, and he wound wound up in Harvard, um, and he and because of his military work and his intelligence work, he knew a lot of people who were involved in the very very first flushes of the Cold War, of, 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 of building the national security state. His advisor, um, uh, William Elliott, William Yendel Elliott, was a kind of um, philosopher, scholar, spook, you know, one of these, you know, guys that was, I guess, involved in the OAA, OSS, and then, and then, um, and then was, had some role in building this national security state. And he understood, he was a Kantian, Hegelian, continental philosopher, and he took Kissinger under his wing in in um, in, in Harvard, and then he Kissinger was very precocious. He established contacts. He he started a, new, um, a magazine, Contours, which you know was like one of these little magazines that we have today. You know, Jacobin or the Baffler. Only only it was at Harvard, and he used it to kind of bring people like Hannah Arendt and. You know, a lot of intellectual luminaries to Harvard where he, you know, he continued building a network. Um, he did his Ph.D. at Harvard and then he went on to uh, uh, take a position as an assistant professor of, of uh, political of politics at Harvard. At the same time, he had he had um, he had he had established himself within the Council of Foreign Affairs and had become an advisor to Nelson Rockefeller. Now, this was the 60s. This is the 1960s by now we're talking about. And he developed a reputation as a theorist of nuclear strategy. And he was also, um, he also, as I mentioned, he was considered the, the main foreign, foreign policy advisor as an academic to Nelson Rockefeller, who was seen as somebody who was going to become president. Nelson Rockefeller was going to, you know, maybe... You know, certainly to see Johnson and 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 become president, and so there was a sense that Kissinger's rise was tied to Rockefeller, and and that didn't happen, right? <laughs> we know about the rise. We know about Goldwater in '64 and Nixon in '68. There was a revolt in the Republican Party against the the globalists. Sounds familiar. Um, and 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 Kissinger thought his his political career was over. I mean, there's a, there's a famous scene uh, in which Hal, he and Hal Holbrook are watching the Democratic convention in '68 in in in, in Martha's Vineyard, and and uh, the Republicans had already nominated um, Nixon. Kissinger couldn't believe that. And he thought, you know, because he was, he was, you know, it was that moment of bipartisanship. So he he had ties with the Democratic Party. He had he had been informal advisor to JFK's administration. So there was a chance he could have he could have um, gotten. A, but they watched the Democrats tear themselves apart in Chicago. There, you know, Chicago '68. You know, you know, in you know the famous um, cop riot with William, you know, Mayor Daley. And the yippies, and um, and he just thought it was over. For, he thought his, he thought he, he he broke. He just broke down in front of Hal Holbrook. What am I going to do? My, you know, my my, you know, where, you know, there's no space for me. But then he pulled himself together, and 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 what he did was he basically made contact with the Reagan with the Nixon administration, who who, you know, he spent months deriding as thinking as being too extreme, too outside the spectrum too far to the right and he made he made contacts with Richard Allen who was a, Nixon's far, foreign affairs uh, advisor at the time and said listen I could use my contacts in in the Democratic Party to let you know what's going on with these peace talks that are happening in Paris because um you know there was a fear that if those peace talks advanced and and the Vietnam war was was wound down uh um uh then then 
you know, that would be a big shot in the arm for Humphrey, the, the Democratic nominee. And he did. And he played, a, you know, it was called, Richard Allen has great descriptions of him, of, of Nixon calling from pay phones in Paris and, you know, in, in rain jacket, in a rain jacket, only speaking German, you know, in, in case in case anybody was listening. And he passed on information. He particularly passed on information about the impending deal that was about to be announced that, that would have ended the Vietnam War. Uh, you know, in the second, you know, in the next administration, and and the Nixon campaign immediately used that information uh, with it back channel to Anna Chenault, another right wing luminary, uh, you know, historical figure to 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 the um, to the North Viet- to the South Vietnamese to scuttle the deal. Now, you know, a lot there's a lot of questions. You know, would Nixon have won anyway? Nixon had probably had it, this information from other sources. But the point was that that Kissinger was doing what he could to stay in the game and to accommodate to the new situation. And Rich and Nixon awarded him uh, by giving him the national security advisor spot. You're listening to historian Greg Grandin. Uh, author of Kissinger's Shadow, The Long Reach of America's Most Controversial Statesman. Greg Grandin, numerous obit writers and eulogists have noted that that the policies that Kissinger formulated and the diplomatic initiatives he he reshaped, that through those he reshaped the post-global landscape. If you were to highlight the initiatives for which he he should be remembered, what would they be? Well, the main one, and and this is you know not to not to belabor, but to kind of segue off of my last long biographical answer, is Kissinger. You know, Kissinger was involved in many crimes, and you listed many of them in your introduction, and and we we can rehearse some of them or not later on. But the main thing that he should be remembered for is that he came to power at a very consequential moment as the old national security state was coming apart as a result of Vietnam. Um, it was, you know, as a result of domestic polarization, as a result of this barbaric war in South Vietnam, as a result of protest. The old national security state put together after World War II by the, by, by the, you know, the cold warriors, the best and the brightest. You know, it, it was based on a number of principles, popular support, or at least on, you know, at least on no dissent, bipartisanship. Um, you know, and 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 a sense of detachment from democratic input that begins to kind of unravel with Vietnam, and it's and 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 so Kissinger comes to power right at a moment of that unraveling, and and he hastens its unraveling. We can go into the details later, but his secret bombing of Cambodia, in particular, adds to the you know the fury of protest domestically. Kent State, you know the you know the the um, the, the killing of the four students, um, and so he contributes to this domestic dissent in some, many of his policies, particularly his his expanding of the war into Cambodia and Laos. But he's also consequential because he's there for the rebuilding of the national security state, the new national security state that comes out of the ruins of the of the U.S hemorrhaging its authority in Southeast Asia. And that national security state is basically what what we've been living under, you know, much more reliance on covert operations, much more ability to to um, to actually thrive off domestic polarization or politicians being able to use foreign using foreign relations in order to kind of leverage domestic polarization to their own advantage and kissinger kind of perfect kissinger's a lot of all of those covert operations that kissinger is involved in coups and whatnot are are part of his kind of contributing to the remaking of a national security state. So I would say that was, that's his main contribution. Now, now he was also, he also put into place policies in the Middle East, for instance, which was part of the pivot out of Vietnam as the United States was losing Vietnam. The United States pivots to the Middle East and Kissinger is an architect of that pivot. There's, 
that's policies related to China, policies related to, to, to what was the Soviet Union um, that were also very influential, which we can talk to talk about. But it's that's the larger context. It's that he's he's involved in that in that post Vietnam uh, reconstruction of American power. Greg Grandin, you've you've tracked the trajectory of Kissinger's influence from the disastrous wars in Southeast Asia to the catastrophic ones in Iraq, Afghanistan, and beyond in the Middle East, as you just mentioned. Can we identify some key continuities in the man's thinking, his strategic outlook that shaped, shaped that particular trajectory? Yeah, so Kissinger's an odd duck. <laughs> he, he's often misrecognized as as a so-called realist, uh, you know, part of it had to do with his accent. Part of it had to do with his self-presentation, you know. Um, and he and and historians used to say that he kind of stood askance to the United States, uh, United States idealism. That he he was interested in power politics. That he brought neck into you know U.S. D- diplomacy. But you know that that misses a couple of things. It misses the the degree to which he was quint- quintessentially of the United States. I mean, he was practically ben- Benjamin Franklin in his ability to reinvent himself. You know, his, you know, self-conception and self-reconstruction and then present themselves in order to advance himself personally. But in terms of philosophically, he, he, he was very influenced not by realism, but by idealism. What I mean by that is by a certain kind of German will to power subjectivism. A romanticism that we associate with the with the Nazi Party, a kind of rejection of realism. A reject. Kissinger believed in great men. He he believed that great men had the power to to intervene in history and bend the curve back upwards as a, as an empire was about to, you know, maybe about to enter into its declining era. He thought that um he, he you know he had he had a, he, an analysis that too much bureaucracy, too much information was paralyzing. Because, you know, a, a leader who has too much information is just is, is overcome by the by the possibility of, of whatever they do, it will result in catastrophe. Uh, he you know he was very much against thinking of history as a process of cause and effect. History is fine as analogy. Right. It's always 1938 and we're always Neville Chamberlain and we're always about to appease unless we unless we overcome our will to our, our, our tendency to appease. And, and, and then and we act and we strike. And um, and but he didn't like history as cause and effect, because because if a politician understood, say, that U.S. support for the Mujahideen in the 1970s in Afghanistan led to the led to the creation of Al Qaeda or the invasion of Iraq led to the creation of ISIS, then, um, then, then politicians will be, too, again, this notion of being too fearful to act. So you have to forget about history as cause and effect. Even the current catastrophe has to be dealt on its own terms, and, and the way you deal with it is by intervening and by acting. So he was a very, he, it was a very much a kind of... Um, you know, a, a, fet- a fetishizing of the will, of the act that, that ran through a lot of Kissinger's uh, uh, dipl- diplomatic philosophy. Again, you're listening to Greg Grandin, historian at Yale. We're talking about Henry Kissinger today. Uh, we'll open up the phone lines, oh, at half past the hour, with, say five minutes, if you want to get in with a converse- to the conversation, with a comment, an observation, a question, give us a call at 608 608- Two five six two thousand and one. Henry Kissinger, over the course of his career, insisted on the importance of creative, of creative and unexpected responses to crises, of um, what he, what is referred to as unpredictability, mm-hmm. the need to in, introduce the threat of irrationality into negotiations. Talk about that some. What that meant in real terms. Well, that 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 meant. I mean, that was along the lines of what I was talking about, and the, and the concrete example of that is the secret bombing of Cambodia. So Nixon and Kissinger come to Barrington in 1969. The, the peace talks have, you know, 
have been scuttled largely because of their actions. But they came to power promising to end the war with a secret plan. Remember the secret plan that Nixon had to end the war? <laughs> you know, but they, yeah, there was no secret plan. But they, they couldn't get North Vietnamese to come back to the negotiating table. They couldn't start bombing again. Nixon, uh, Johnson had, had stopped bombing and, and there was no public appetite to, to restarting a bombing campaign of North, North Vietnam. So Kissinger came up with the idea of bombing Cambodia. That was the reason that the United States bombed Cambodia for five years. I mean, tactically, there was supposedly it, the benefit was that it would it was it was aimed to stop a logistic trail, you know, um, the Ho Chi Minh Trail, you know, in, in, by which the North was getting supplies to the South. But really, it really Kissinger thought that by bombing Cambodia, it would send a message to North Vietnam. Oh my God. Nixon and Kissinger are so crazy, they'll do anything. They'll bomb Cambodia. Let's go back to the negotiating table. And, of course, that didn't work. And and the bombing continued, and it continued, and it continued, and it escalated, and it eventually spread beyond the border region into across the whole of the country. And it did enormous, enormous damage to Cambodia to you know, to the degree that it, get, it was responsible to a large degree to, 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 to the rise of not just not just the Khmer Rouge, but the most extreme elimina- eliminationist uh, cadre within the Khmer Rouge, you know, around Pol Pot. So that's one example, the bombing of Cambodia. It's like, I'm, I'm, this is going to be a crazy madman act, and, and North, North Vietnam is not going to know what to do except to come back to the negotiating table, which, of course, they, like, they didn't do for quite a while, and not because Kissinger was bombing Cambodia. Hence the sobriquet, uh, the Mad Bomber. He, mad, he, mad Bomb and the Mad Man Theory. Yeah. <clears throat> you wrote that until recently, one could argue that it was Richard Nixon who best realized Kissinger's philosophy of history and diplomacy. Why was that? I, I want to I hone in on this a little bit. Uh, that is, especially the qualifier, the, until recently, uh, <laughs> So, <laughs> well, I meant I, I, you know, the thing about Kissinger is that he makes his peace with whatever comes down the pike, and 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 as the country drifted rightward, so did Kissinger. Uh, so Kissinger, you know, Kissinger thought Reagan was 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 too nutty to be president, but he made his peace with Reagan and and did on a consulting work for him. He, the, the neocons, uh, you know, they actually rose up attacking Kissinger's uh, post-Vietnam diplomacy. And, and Kissinger made his peace with the neocons, you know, especially helping to prolong the first Iraq, the second Iraq war. And then Donald Trump. I mean, you know, he, I don't I don't think he endorsed Donald Trump, but he had the he, you know, he had nothing but praise for Donald Trump. You know, there's a I, that epigraph that I use for the book uh, that, you know, there are two kinds of realists, one that one that makes one that accepts reality as it is and one that makes reality, you know, and that's, the, you know, that that's, the you know, and so who better than that than a star of a reality, a reality show? You know, written Donald Trump. I mean, it turns out their relationship didn't really pan out and become become particularly influential or consequential for many reasons. But but uh, but yeah. But in many ways, you could see Donald Trump as as the culmination of 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 Henry Kissinger's philosophy of history and diplomacy. Uh, once again, you're listening to Yale historian Greg Grandin. We're talking Henry Kissinger today. If you want to join with a question, a comment, an observation for our guests, give us a call at 608-256-2001. Greg Grandin, you've written a great deal about the history of, the, of U.S. imperial meddling in Latin America. One of your early works described most of the hemisphere as as the Empire's Workshop, a sort of laboratory or pr- proving ground for the projection of U.S. power. Talk about Henry Kissinger's role in the 1973 coup in Chile. Well, Kissinger 
basically saw Latin America as inconsequential. You know, he has a famous quote, nothing happens in Latin America. It wasn't part of the, it wasn't part of the world, the world island as Europe and Asia used to be called. It wasn't, it wasn't where history was made. And, you know, um, he once said Latin America is a dagger pointed at the heart of Antarctica. Um, <laughs> you know, he also said the same thing about about Argentina and 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 Australia. But you know, he like, but but the point is, he didn't. You know, and and so he he wanted Latin America clamped down. He wanted to treat Latin America pretty much like a post revolution, like like midneck treated post French revolutionary Europe, and um and he uh, especially in. In, in trying to kind of restabilize U.S. power after Vietnam, um, supported a series of coups in Latin America and, and, and urging countries to, to enact whatever repression they, they, they needed and to do it quickly. He famously said that in Argentina, whatever you need to do, do quickly, he told the Argentine. But in Bolivia and Uruguay and Argentina, but of course Chile was a, was, was a particular case. Chile... Chile... Salvador Allende was elected in 1970 as a democratic Marxist. He was he wasn't a democratic socialist. He 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 was a Marxist. He he believed that eventually the the means of production, at least the 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 the, the on the large on the important means of production, would be in the hands of the public sector. Um, and but he was also committed to democratic proceduralism. And Cy Hirsch, I think, might have been the first one to point out that this was a this this was a this was a particular danger for for Kissinger because it's it's one thing you know anybody can isolate a Castro and you know call him an authoritarian you know and 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 marginalize him, but Kissinger represented and it wasn't I mean Kissinger Allende represented what was a larger movement you know in Europe Euro communism an attempt to you know, in which communist parties would no longer serve as the kind of minor party in a democratic coalition, but maybe the main party. And this was possible in Portugal and Italy. And, and, and this is certainly what happened in, in, um, in, 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 in Chile. So Allende went to no, uh, I'm sorry, Kissinger went to no ends to overthrow Allende. And to, first to stop him coming to power by organizing an attempt to um, kidnap which resulted in the death of General Rene Schneider, who was a, considered a constitutionalist, constitutionalist democratic general. They thought if they could remove him from the scene, they might um, it might prevent Allende's inauguration. It led to his killing. Um, and then they did everything that they could to destabilize uh, Allende over the course of three years, which eventually succeeded in, in, 19, in 1973. And of course, Chile is important because not only was Allende overthrown and the model of democratic socialism, uh, uh, you know, squashed, you, these Euro-communist parties in Europe came to the conclusion that there was no way that it, the United States was going to let them, you know, uh, you know, become, you know, the the principal players in, in democratic coalitions in Italy or in, or in Portugal. And so th that strategy was kind of put on hold. And of course, Chile was important because it was the place where the libertarian economists, you know, you know, were let to run wild and, and, and implement a, a kind of economic shock doctrine that becomes the foundation of neoliberalism. So out of the ruins of that coup, the two symbols of two different ways of organizing the world emerge, Salvador Allende and Augusto Pinochet, you know, and they still have resonance today. You know, people people love Allende who are democratic socialists and people who are not hold up Pinochet. I mean, people in the January 6th uh, uprising in, in Washington were wearing Pinochet. They wear Pinochet t-shirts with helicopters. It symbolizes Pinochet's tactic of throwing dissidents into the ocean to the Pacific from helicopters. So the idea is, you know, the helicopter symbol of a helicopter is a symbol of Pinochet. And then this has resonance later on in the Soviet, when the Soviet Union collapses, where there's a, there, there emerges a cult of Pinochet. A lot of those economists who lead, lead the privatization go to Chile to see how Pinochet did it. 
and they want that you know there was a constant desire yearning for a russian pinochet and they eventually get it in putin you know there's this remarkable uh photo that is circulating the past week or so of uh kissinger and, and augusto pinochet embracing yeah and and they're beaming they're they're, they're this it's like I don't, I don't it's hard to describe but the, people should google around in, in google photos of whatever pinochet and kissinger to see this remarkable uh picture is worth a thousand words 608-256-2001 with a question a comment an observation give us a call f- for greg grandin while we're on it talk about for a second or so operation condor well, Operation Condor was a, a a kind of transnational consortium of death squads. Uh, the, the the process works like this: after the Cuban Revolution, the United States was very interested in in centralizing the intelligence agencies of individual countries to get them to work more efficiently to respond to dissidents or. or subversives. And that entails being able to capture people, gather information through torture, analyze that information and act quickly on it, right? So so you're, you're, you're expanding the radius of your operation. Then you capture more people, you get more information, and you act on it. And, and, um, and the United States throughout the 1960s and 70s spends most of its military aid trying to centralize centralize these intelligence agencies of its Latin American dictatorship allies. Operation Condor is that process on an international scale. Once the individual intelligence agencies are professionalized and, 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 and centralized in any given nation, then they can be integrated into a larger transnational consortium of terrorists. And that comes into operation after after the 1973 coup in Chile, and 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 um, it had its it had international reach. It killed people in Italy, and you know, and you know, killed Chileans in, in in Buenos Aires, and you know, most famously in Sheridan Square it, it, in 1975, I believe. It 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 it, it there was a a bomb. Uh, there was a bombing of of Ronnie Moffat and and Orlando Letelier uh, who who worked in the Ministry of Economy uh, under Allende. So Sheridan Circle in D.C. Yeah, Sheridan Circle in D.C. Um, Jade tells me that we do have a caller on the line with a question about Kissinger. Um, hello, caller, you're on the air. Yeah, this is Steve. Yeah, hi, Am Steve. Yes, yes um, Mr. Grandin, I look forward to purchasing your most recent book. Since 1970, my hair has been on fire regarding the crimes of the monster at the center of the labyrinth, Henry Kissinger. Since that time, I've become a more sophisticated history student, and my finest personal insight is perhaps the following. The most significant fact of the 20th century was a non-event, the likely nuclear holocaust of the Northern Hemisphere. Now, the power broker during the DEFCON 3 alert of 25 October 1973, concurrent to the Yom Kippur War, was Henry Kissinger, who put detente with Russia as his highest priority and uh, helped manage the climb down from a nuclear exchange. This should be remembered and uh, put into the final analysis. And that's all. Thank you, Alan. Bye. Thanks for that call. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I mean, it's it's this. I mean, as we said, there's so many things. But I mean, during the Young Kippur War, there the, there was a nuclear alert, uh, you know, and and, and the, as the United States was, you know, was um was was back was backing Israel. It was a it was a it, you know um it, it was a non-event. I mean, obviously there was no, but there were different moments in Kissinger and Nixon. Uh, Kissinger. To, to to be fair, in the in the in the in the in the telecoms and in the transcripts, it's it's most often Nixon that seems the one eager to think about the possibility of using nuclear weapons <laughs> for different conflicts than 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 Kissinger was. But Kissinger could be totally reckless, you know. In the nineteen seventy one uh, 
um, Bangladeshi's war for independence from West, from what was then known as West Pakistan, Kissinger basically, um, this is another example of, of a certain kind of uh, adventurism and diplomacy. Uh, you know, he, 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 effect, he, he essentially invited China to intervene in India. He basically said, "If you if you feel it's in your interest to do you know to do something, we will not stand in the way." Um, he sent an atomic um, uh, an atom a nuclear powered uh, battleship, the Enterprise, from Vietnam to the to the I think the Bay of Bengal or the Indian Ocean to signal support for for, for Pakistan. Um, and uh, and of course that's that's one of the genocide genocide Kissinger has uh, what he has two genocides in his pocket uh, two am I, or am I missing one he didn't, you know, well one is Cambodia three. three of course three three yes three uh, one is Cambodia one is East Timor when he gives the green light for Indonesia to to invade East Timor and the third one is is the you know. Hundreds of thousands to millions of people were killed, Bengalis, uh, uh, by the Pakistan army in in what is now Bangladesh, uh, including including ma- mass rapes on a scale unimaginable that is now widely considered to be a genocide. And Clinton basically urged Pakistan on, and didn't just urge Pakistan on, urged. Urge China to to, to to get involved if it, it you know because they really Kissinger and Nixon really hated Indira Gandhi. I mean, we we were told, we were chatting before the show about the seven words you still can't say on public radio, and and one of I don't know if one of them is this, but it rhymes with the witch, and they called Indira Gandhi that and other things. To a remarkable degree, they were obs- they were obsessed with Indira Gandhi. We kind of buzzed by East Timor. I want to get yeah. a minute on that one. That is that is Kissinger and his green lighting of of the dictator Suharto's invasion of East Timor. Uh, again, another genocide. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Suharto was Kissinger and Ford were on a plane. This is, I mean, it's a very almost a filmic uh, scene. They're on their plane. They're ready to depart. I think uh, I think uh, a bunch of Indonesian officials board the plane and say that they have plans to invade, uh, you know, um, East Timor and 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 a- annex it because East Timor had an independence movement and declared itself independent. And uh, and Nixon and Kiss- Nixon and Ford basically let Suharto's men know that, if not Suharto himself, I can't remember that that they had no objection to it. And of course, they supplied the arm, you know, uh, the arms for a lot of this, for a lot of the killing. And and uh, and and the next day, I think that Indonesia invaded. Talk talk for a second about Kissinger's diplomacy, so called which also stoked the war in Angola and prolonged apartheid in South Africa. Well, this, again, this is his move, the, 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 you know, again, in this, in this very consequential eight years in which he was public office, um, up to 1973, too, it's consumed by Vietnam. And then after 73 to 76, it's, it's obsessed with kind of stabilizing U.S. foreign policy. And part of it was this turn towards Towards, um, towards, you know, stabilizing the third world and the U.S. spheres of influence, and Kissinger supported, uh, you know, Angola and Mozambique had just had just re- fought and won their independence um, from Portugal. Uh, Portugal exited dramatically, you know, very abruptly in one of these ways that you know lead to a great deal of destabilization and uncertainty and and Kissinger and again working with China because of you know the Sino-Soviet split began to support anti-communist insurgencies in 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 um in Angola and Mozambique uh uh which did enormous damage and it's just a, the you know cali- you know obviously they didn't you know, hundreds and millions of people were killed in these two insurgencies for no other reason other than other than not to let the possible a possible 
pro-Soviet or Soviet tilting, you know, uh, coalition regime take power in both places. Um, what happens in Angola is in 1975, Cuba, defying Russia, sends 30,000 troops into Angola in order to save the MLPA and, um, uh, and you know, the, the, the ruling coalition and, um, and, and fight back uh the 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 white vigilantes and 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 apartheid troops from Rhodesia and from you know and and from South Africa and this forces Kissinger to completely abandon whatever whatever elaborate philosophical edifice he was he thought he was working from and just completely do it about face on Africa their policy in Africa Kissinger called it the tar baby problem a policy. It meant supporting white supremacy wherever it existed, and um, and he completely and and part of that was also part part of that quote unquote tar baby policy was part of um, the southern strategy, the the support for white supremacy at home and cultivating white resentment at home in the south had an you know wasn't wasn't just a domestic policy it was a foreign policy nixon nixon's men can go and say look we're keeping we're keeping them down in angola and and mozambique too not just in mississippi and um but kissinger had to do a complete about about face and and declare that you know, white supremacy could no, you know, had to start winding up and had to be majority democratic rule. It took a long time for that to happen, but it really was the beginning of the end for Rhodesia and for South Africa's apartheid government. Uh, Kissinger even put on a dashiki and and did a tour of Africa and and started talking about how the you know the United States would accept you know plural different ways of development, you know, including local versions of socialism if it, as long as it wasn't aligned with the Soviet Union. So, um, you know, Cuba, you know, Cuba basically forced the end of white supremacy in Southern Africa with that operation in 1975. I want to come back to the Middle East. You wrote that Kissinger left that region in chaos, setting the stage for crises that continue uh, to afflict humanity. How is that so? Well, three different ways. You just for the sake of the conversation, you could think of the Gulf. You could think of the Israeli Israeli Palestine conflict, and then you could think of of Pakistan and Afghanistan. In terms of the Gulf, Kissinger really cemented the United States's relationship with oil rich Arab countries, uh, and 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 was the architect of what we think of the kind of pet- there was a move by the Third World and proposals and hopes that. That a lot of the petrodollars, that you know, that you know, the skyrocketing price of energy, and and the sudden wealth of Saudi Arabia and pre-revolutionary Iran could be used to capitalize third world development. Kissinger basically organized a system in which all of that, all those petrodollars, were recycled back into New York, London, and bond banks and also used to purchase enormous amounts of defense contracts from U.S. defense manufacturers. In some ways, the point was to avoid the drawdown, avoid the shock of, uh, of, of, of limited, of a suddenly collapsing demand after Vietnam. That, you, know, the, you know, U.S. defense industry didn't have to, have to worry that the Vietnam War was over because it had Saudi Arabia and it had Iran. And of course, Kissinger's cultivation of the Shah and Sivak, the, 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 the torturous and, and brutal security forces in Iran, which contributed to the revolution, you know, led to, you know, led to, led to, you know, contributed to the, to the opposition and contributed to the eventual overthrow and the, and the rise of an Islamic uh, republic there, in 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 Israel and Palestine, Kissinger really um, really kind of locked in the crisis. Salim Yakub, the historian of Chicago, has a book on this. I think Rashid Khalidi talks about it. Is that Kissinger? You know, obviously the, the crisis wasn't Kissinger. You know, nineteen sixty seven war was predated Kissinger, but Kissinger did a number of things. One, it you know. It lot, along with locking in U.S.'s relationship with these with these oil wealthy, 
you know, with the Saudi with Saudi Arabia, uh, it locked his relationship the United States in with the relationship with 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 Israel. It demanded that the PLO recognize the existence of Israel without demanding an equivalent from from Israel that Israel recognize the legitimacy of a Palestinian state, and um, and so it kind of created the deadlock that we that 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 has been going on. For forever, you know. I mean, has been going on, you know, and 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 all of the crises that have emerged from that deadlock. And then the third area in the Middle East, Pakistan and Afghanistan, it was Kissinger who started, you know, playing around, urging Pakistan to start, you know, politicizing Islam and using it as a as a way to destabilize. Russian influence in Afghanistan. I mean, it's a, it's something that comes into full force in the 1980s. But Kissinger's Kissinger is 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 already getting Saudi Arabia and Pakistan to start, you know, building the 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 foundations of what becomes the Mujahideen. Uh, you know, so so you know the politicization of Islam as as an anti-communist force. Um, so, so it wasn't just speaking of Brzezinski, but it trails back to yeah, yeah. I mean, it takes a qualitative jump with, with you know, in, in in later on in the seventies. But it, you know, Kissinger's already kind of urging urging Pakistan to start, you know, seeing how far they could push the envelope in, in Afghanistan. You know, unfortunately, this hour is flying by, and I have so much I'd love to talk with you about. <laughs> uh, Kiss, Kissinger was never just. An imperialist, an imperial strategist, uh, and theorist. He was a political operative of the highest order. You know, talk for a moment about the Watergate era revelations that Kissinger authorized wiretaps. Yeah, I mean Kissinger, like Nixon, authorized wiretaps. Cy Hirsch, that essay that you that 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 article that you that you sent earlier. It's, it was a lovely piece of writing of, of Kissinger. Of the thing about Kissinger is Kissinger, in many ways, was the key player in Watergate. So Kissinger knew Ellsberg and in Harvard, and 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 um, and Kissinger was bombing Cambodia secretly. And even though the Pentagon Papers had nothing to do with the Nixon administration, right? They all they end its history ends with with Lyndon Bain Johnson, with LBJ. Kissinger was obsessed that if Ellsberg had access to the the Pentagon Papers, he had he he had access to documents about Cambodia. So he was the one who urged Nixon to go after Ellsberg to set up the plumbers to 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 to, to you know find information on Ellsberg to go into the Watergate hotel. So Nixon, is, I mean Kissinger is hands are all over Watergate, but he survives. He survives because he's good at cultivating the press. He survives because he seems like the only adult in the room uh, compared with the Prussians, you know, the Ehrlichmans and the Mitchells and all the Mins, you know, the people who look like this thing, you know. So the the press kind of like Kissinger, and he, he survives into the Ford administration. And then what does he do after the Ford administration? He doesn't stay in Washington. He doesn't try to go back to academia comes to New York. He comes to New York and he creates Kissinger Associates. And, you know, we don't have that much time left, but it, it, it's, it, it merits saying that, that Kissinger was only in public office for eight years. Kissinger Associates operated for three or four decades. They were the premier consultant firm for neoliberalism, the transition to the privatization of the world in Russia, in Latin America, in Eastern Europe. They, you know, and, and their records, it's a private company. So that's the dark side of the moon. I mean, we know, I mean, there's hundreds of thousands of documents about Kissinger doing this and that in his eight years in office. You know, there's nothing about Kissinger Associates. And it's in that role, you know, the ability, you know, to move from the public sector into the and then monetize what you did in the public sector as a private citizen. We've seen this and we know that this is part of how Washington works. Uh, Kissinger is a is 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 like, you know, the 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 premier exemplar of, of this. And I get okay. you know, yeah, a kind of privatization of foreign policy. 
Yeah, and and benefiting from it. So while in office, right, he he helped authorize and secure funds for Union Carbide to build a plant in Bhopal, India. While in office, what happens in Bhopal, India, in 1984? The huge gas leak that leads to enormous suffering, untold numbers of death, untold numbers of of, of illnesses and suffering. And Kissinger is the and Kissinger Associates is the is the representative of Union Carbide in its settlement for the damages there, and they managed to push down and pay off only a, a remarkably small amount. Kissinger won a small award, you know, on behalf of Union Carbide. So you know who knows what his fee was for doing that. You know, I mean, that, you know that that's how that's the. Yeah. We have to hit, unfortunately have to head toward a wrap. But I wanted to touch on one thing. That is, in your recent appraisal of Kissinger uh, in articles in Jacobin and The Nation, you described Kissingerism as a perpetual motion machine, that the purpose of American power was to create an awareness of American purpose, that there was a whirlpool of reasoning in his thinking and you carry that and you lead that to the, the, I guess, the quintessence of that, and that is back to Donald Trump in the president. Yeah, yeah. Well, that goes back to all, all the stuff we were talking about, you know, how there's no first real first foundational principle for Kissinger. You know, Kissinger is associated with thinking about defending U.S. interests, but U.S. interests are, are, are only understood through the exercise of power. So you have to constantly act. You know, power is power is never static. It's either it's either accumulating or or receding. So you you know you you need to constantly you know move in order to maintain it. And it's through that movement that you become aware of yourself and aware of your interests. And that's and that and that's I think that's a good definition of any as Kissingerism of Kissingerism. So so Trump, in some sense is a fruition or personification of Kissinger's legacy? Well, I would say that the crisis that we're living in, in which you know, the poly crisis, whatever you want to call it, the overlapping overlapping crises that that in which no in which no one person can come up with a with a viable creative solution for what comes next. Um, is is uh, that vacuum? I think is a result of of uh, of you know not Henry Kissinger, just Henry Kissinger. It's a result of the kind of ceaseless militarism that Kissinger supported. I mean, let's keep things in perspective. You know, the United States is bigger than Kissinger, and 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 the militarism has many different kind of sources and 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 propulsions and but it's it's endless war as has i think has led to you know to the to the moment that we're in now and 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 can't seem to find an exit from i mean you know people want to find you know people complain about disinformation and false and you know very quickly and fake news and all of that that's just the counter that's just the psychops coming home you know, that's all it was. It's you know, you know, the disinformation campaign that the United States has been waging on the rest of the world for a de- for a century is now just, you know, it's just now washing back. Well, we have to go, uh, Greg Grandin. Uh, a very brief final word. Uh, one last thing that I've been trying to say is that Kissinger's still killing people. You know, the the bomb, the unexploded ordinances in Laos and Cambodia every year. Hundreds of people die in those countries, farmers who accidentally kick a bomb that didn't go off, that was dropped in 71, 72, and they die. So the, you know, the, 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 the killing continues. Well, I want to thank you very much, Yale historian Greg Grandin, for your illuminating hour on Henry the K, the mad bomber and great statesman. Uh, you've been listening to... Uh, WRT 89.9 FM. I want to thank Jade for producing, Jack for engineering. I've been your host. A special thanks to Greg Grandin, of course. I've been your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff, and I'll be speaking with you next week. Thank you all. Interest on the credit card just keeps on compounding. But the FCC can never shut this pirate sound down. I'm indirect, we come and never pre recorded. With information that will never be reported. Disregard the mainstream. Media distorted. We come and listen.